Are you looking to buy or sell a home? Wondering where to start? Do you have questions about mortgage and real estate and need honest, accurate answers? Well, you're in the right place. Welcome to The Educated Home Buyer with expert real estate broker, Jeb Smith, and certified mortgage consultant, Josh Lewis, where we discuss everything you need to know to buy right, borrow smart, and build wealth through real estate ownership. Welcome back, the Educated Home Buyer Live. Our goal here is to help you buy right, borrow smart, and build wealth through real estate ownership and financing. My name is Jeff Smith. I'll be your tour guide. And this is Josh Lewis. No, gays, guys, not gays. Gays. Guys, they're welcome welcome to the show. They're welcome to Jeff. There's there's a lot going on here. Clearly, my mind is in the gutter at the moment. Um, we appreciate you guys being back. Um, we've had a lot of news over the last week. Uh, a lot of it has to do with the Fed and you know, increases and their balance sheet, which we are definitely gonna dive into tonight. I'm missing facial hair, which many of you guys are probably going to comment. It fell out just accidentally one morning. It was gone. Nothing I could do about it. Uh, but here we are. Josh, welcome to the show. Uh, yeah. What's the old uh, Chinese curse? May you live in interesting times. Um, every day we get to uh, wake up and see what interesting times we have today. So this week's been fun. Uh, yesterday kind of got blindsided by some comments uh, from Fed was she vice chairman Lael Brainerd yep. um, and then today we got the minutes that um, the minutes probably would have told us what she said yesterday anyways which is kind of uh, interesting uh, the way they leak things out and uh, I was telling you yesterday the younger Josh would have thought that they're idiots and don't know what they're doing but an older Josh realizes that they're crazy like a fox. They know exactly what they're doing and they're trying to manipulate uh, the long end of the curve. You know, for for those of you watching at home, we talked a lot last week uh, about the inverted yield curve and how that's predictive of recession. Well, uh, that's they're they're being accused of exacerbating it because um, Fed hikes push up the short end of the curve, um, and the long end of the curve has been staying relatively level. So they're making the inversion. Well, with what she's talking about is selling off their holdings of treasury securities and mortgage-backed securities. Doing that will push up the long end of the curve and keep from being an inversion. So it's sort of like if you went to your doctor and said um, he wasn't going to use the thermometer because it would show that you had a fever. So it was just going to you know, touch you on the forehead and guess what your temperature is. Um, the, the underlying causes of the inversion are still going to be there, whether the, the yield curve actually remains inverted or, or not. But uh, definitely appears as though the Fed is willing and able to, to clear out a, a chunk of their, their treasury holdings and mortgage-backed securities, which is going to continue to put pressure on interest rates. Gotcha. Yeah. And, and we've seen interest rates rise. I mean, you know, significantly with with some of these comments. I mean, not just yesterday, but just in general. I mean, today we got a little bit of retracement. So we got a little bit of it back, which is a good thing. The market didn't react um, quite as irrational today with the actual minutes coming out saying what they were going to to do versus just the headline is what we you know, what we read yesterday, which Again, it's interesting. I mean, we've talked many times about the, you know, where the 10 year is and historically or traditionally speaking, um, you know, how that translates into interest rates. You know, there's, you know, I think you said 1.6, 1.7% typically added to that 
uh, Fed funds rate, and you get an idea of where interest rates were. So if, if today you're looking at, you know, a 2.6, is that where we are on the 10 year? 2.6, 2.7? Yep. Yeah. So we'd be looking at a rate somewhere around 4.3, but instead we're at 5%. So we're going to dive into all of this stuff in a little bit more detail and make some sense of it for you. Um, for those of you guys who are new, uh, there is a podcast form of this episode. It'll go out on Friday. So we're taking this stream, turning it into a podcast along with a lot of additional information. Many of you guys have reached out, given us positive comments. So thank you for that. But it's the Educated Home Buyer. You can search it on essentially any platform. Uh, but the majority of the episodes out there are not this live. They are detailed conversations um, about a specific topic. Uh, this past week, we talked about interest rates in detail. Um, next week, uh, we're actually talking about writing offers, how to make better offers, how to write better offers in this environment. So that'll come out every Tuesday and then every Friday is the live so if you don't want to stay and want to listen to that, you can do that. So uh, that is the house cleaning items out of the way. Josh, what, um, you know, let's talk about inventory for a moment, right? So the, the, big, the big headline, if you will, is that market demand is essentially going to stall because interest rates are high. At the moment, we haven't seen it. Um, again, it's been a very short period of time, so I'm not, you know, forecasting what, you know, this isn't my forecast for two months for now. But at the moment, demand is still very strong. Um, a lot of multiple offer situations, a lot of people still overbidding. Inventory locally here, Orange County, 1,485 homes as of today, which is essentially, I think, less than we were this time last week, but about the same. Hasn't really moved one way or the other. Here in Huntington Beach today, 83 active homes on the market. Last week, we had about 100. Um, doesn't sound like a big deal, but, you know, 17 missing homes is a lot. I mean, it just puts all of those home buyers that are potentially looking, you know, to bid. They're likely bidding on more of the same properties or they're not bidding at all because they can't find anything while at the same time interest rates rise. So hasn't had the impact yet that a lot of people think it's going to. In fact, we talked today, um, or we didn't talk, we listened rather to a a stream um, with Barry Habib, anybody that follows mortgage, you know, at all, um, or really real estate probably knows the name, um, you know, been, been in the biz around interest rates for a very, very long time, very good predictor of the direction of interest rates. In fact, we've quoted him and some of his um, you know, work that he's done in talking about interest rates. And, you know, the big thing to take away, and we've mentioned this before, but to, to kind of rehash it is that as the Fed, as the Fed, that's the country coming out in the, as the Fed <laughs> starts to raise the Fed funds rate, <sighs> typically inflation goes down and interest rates start to moderate. So in, in turn, interest rates eventually go down as well once inflation's under control. So, or in the process of getting under control. And we saw back in what, 2018, Josh, we saw the Fed essentially try to do what they're doing right now. I mean, it's not a mirror image because inflation was completely different at that time. But let's talk about 2018 before we get into questions here. What, what happened the last time they started to raise the Fed funds rate? They started to try to you know, unload their balance sheet, if you will, um, you know, just to get people out there that aren't following this on a yearly basis or, you know, just to give an idea of what happened back then. 
the the economy started slowing appreciably and and the the interesting thing um, is when you look back and compare over time the similarity of the comments um, that were being made hey we have a strong economy it's appropriate to remove the accommodative stance um, it's it's the right time to normalize uh, policy so what they did was was similar um, had some hikes they were unwinding the the portfolio of of mortgage-backed securities and treasuries which it's not really appropriate for them to hold them they they used it as an additional policy tool to manipulate and push interest rates lower so what what we saw you know jeb you and i were talking yesterday awesome to 2020 other than COVID and, and every bad thing that happened to the world for mortgage and real estate was fantastic. Rates went super low. Everyone got to refinance. Buyers got to buy at reasonable prices relative to where they are today and very low interest rates. Well, if you look, if you take away all that Fed buying, um, not saying they should have done nothing there. If I showed you the bond chart, it kind of went crazy for the 14 to 21 days from when COVID thought it was looked like it was coming to the U.S. to when it was here and people were panicking. The Fed needed to step in. What they didn't need to do after the initial shock and awe was keep buying all the way through 2021. So if we say that that normal spread is 1.7 and a normal reaction should have been to, to take interest rates in terms of the 10 year treasury down, you know, probably under 1%, but let's say three quarters of a percent means mortgage rates should have gone to about two and a half ish. They didn't for various reasons, for the most part, go quite that low but they stayed low longer than they needed to be. So if the Fed hadn't intervened, you know, things would have normalized in the one and a quarter range where we were most of last year. Rates would have been somewhere um, in the, the three, three and a quarter, three and a half. And today, if, if that rate is right, if the 10 year yield is right, somewhere in the two six, um, even if it goes as high as three or three and a quarter, like some really smart people that we follow think it may peak all the way to three and a quarter, you still have an interest rate on most 30 year fixed a little under 5%. So when we look at it, we but say, let's, let's talk about that, Josh, because that's if that that 1.6, 1.7 spread actually normalizes at the moment, it's not normal. And so the reason it, and the reason why is because the market is, you know, holders of bonds are scared to death that the Fed is going to do what they're saying they're they're going to do. So in the minutes that were released today from the last Fed meeting, when they only raised a quarter, which everyone in the world thought they might do a half and, and the world could have easily withstood a half, they should have. But what they were saying is they've talked about decreasing their balance sheet by 95 billion a month. That's 60 billion of treasuries and 35 billion of mortgage-backed securities. Well, after that initial shock and awe phase of their buying in COVID when they just literally bought all bonds uh, for a month or two, they settled into 80 billion of treasuries. So they're gonna sell 75% uh, of, of the amount they were buying in treasuries throughout COVID. And then whatever 35 of 40 is, what is that 80, 85% of what they were buying each month in treasuries. Now, remember as recently as a month or two ago, they were still buying mortgage-backed securities. Like think how crazy that is that these geniuses were buying as recently as 60 days ago, finally just got out and they're like, yeah, you know what? It's totally appropriate that we would sell now. So we talked before about buy the rumor, sell the fact. That spread has been getting bigger because holders of mortgage-backed securities have been looking and going, what happens if they do that? They might, they could, now they're saying they will, 
but we saw these minutes get released. There was some shock and awe yesterday with, with Brainerd saying what they, they formalized today in this, but that's the reason why that spread has, has widened so much. If they sell 35 billion a month for the next six months, that spread will normalize as soon as the market sees how it's absorbed. Like right now, they're going, hey, what's the worst case? I don't know what the worst case is. Let me price for it. So that's why we have this big spread of like two, almost two and a half percent, where it's normally 1.75%. So treasuries can and will go higher. Mortgages could increase less than that, if that makes sense. They're not going to defy the trajectory of treasuries, but they could increase less because so far this year, they've increased more than treasuries right. have. And, and it's important to note, guys, it's not the runoff that's that's the problem. It's the fact that there's no reinvestment, that they're not buying, you know, they're letting it run off and they're not buying anything back in, in the case um, of that runoff, right? That That's what they've done in the past. And, and now they're saying, hey, listen, we're just going to let it run off and essentially not reinvest at all. And that's what the market is worried about. Uh, so, Josh, that talks about interest rates. We'll get into where rates are um, as we go through today. Um, anything else, you know, in the last week? I don't I'm, I'm feel like I'm missing something, but not really. So we can we can dive into some questions if you're ready. Yeah, let's let's do it. That's that's the majority of what we've been talking through and reading. And there's going to be a lot of questions on it and around it. So let's just discuss it. Um, all right, uh, you know, and, and you know, I wanted to touch on some more stuff that Barry said too, but we can we can kind of weave it in here um, as we go through. All right, so again, so you got people asking, should we wait? Should we buy? It's a difficult question to answer. We get this every single week. Here's the thing. I feel, again, personal feelings, the market's not going to change quite as much as people want to see it change. And, and what I mean by that is, are you likely to see demand slow? Yes. It's likely to tell off some, for sure, because of affordability, because of you know rising rates, just factors in general, people getting burnt out on the market. That's gonna happen um, i don't think you're gonna see the increases in supply that some people want to see because of where rates are um and so with that i don't you know the market has been irrational like you know for the last year two years josh i mean can we say that's been fair when you see 18 percent appreciation almost year over year i mean it wasn't exactly that but double digit high double digit appreciation two years in a row not good not sustainable. We need a slowdown. And even the worst predictors out there in the market at the moment, the core logics of the world, you know, those guys are expecting 5% in 2023. So if you're a buyer, if you think you're going to be buying a home this year or next year, and you think even if appreciation goes to 5%, you're still going to be paying more for that home down the road. And many people think rates are going to go up. Now we've talked about rates here and predictions and all that stuff. And at the moment, who knows, but if rates do rise and you see appreciation go up, you're going to be paying more money for that home. Even if home prices don't go up and rates go up, you're still going to be paying more money for that home. So we talk about it all the time, longer term time horizon. If you have time on your side, you can withstand bumps you know, pullbacks, whatever it is in the market. 
Not saying that's going to happen. It's just that's what it allows you to absorb, if you will. So as long as you have that money in the bank, not stretching yourself, I think now is a good opportunity to buy a property. Because I think if you do see a pullback at all in prices, buyer demand is going to be there. It's There are still a lot of people that want to buy homes. There are still a lot of millennials turning prime buying age. Guess what happens right behind millennials? Gen Z turns prime buying age. So you've got a lot of people that are going to be home buyers at some point, and there's not enough supply, still not enough supply. They can't build it fast enough. So, Josh, what do you want to add to that? It's the same question we get all the time. Same question every week. And and Jennifer Lego, our moderator here, has uh, has been watched watched long enough as a smart girl and would have got to this on her own, but says, hey, it's better to buy when it is right for you. There's nothing telling me in the current market that someone whose life stage is correct, you know, they're settled in their relationships, they're settled in their job, they have good credit, they've saved some money and they want to own a home and be somewhere for the next five to seven years, there's no reason not to buy. But think about that. What did we just name off like five different qualifiers? Like if you're not sure of what your relationship is, either it could be breaking up or you could be entering into a new one that might change things, make you move somewhere else, having a kid, any what, number of things. Could what, what I impact, what I wish we could get was the slide from the Habib's thing today that showed Diana Olick from CNBC. So she's the housing expert on CNBC. Hold my and he beer. goes back. Hold my beer, Jeb. I got it. Do you? You're going to pull yeah. it up? Yep. So this is, I mean, this is what happens when you watch the news, so to speak, or the people out there that don't have boots on the ground that are merely reading headlines nonstop. So I can't read that because it's clearly way too small on my screen. So hold on. I can make it bigger. On there this we end. go. So basically, these are her comments going back from, I thought it started earlier than 2015, but from 2015. So she starts by saying there's a housing bubble, you know, larger than 06. 16, she comes out, we're in a housing bubble. 17, homeownership doesn't build wealth. 18, it's better to rent than to buy in today's housing market. 19, the housing market is, is about to shift in a bad way. Again in 19, next year will be hard on the housing market, especially in the big cities. 2021, housing boom is over as new home sales fall to a pandemic a, a pandemic low. And then you go and look on the right-hand side. What happened each one of those years with regards to appreciation? So if you started with a $300,000 home in 2015, that home, based on the median home price and appreciation in that those market, is five hundred and five thousand dollars today so had you listened to diana olick in this case you would have missed out on being a homeowner now each case is a little bit different real estate's local this doesn't apply to everyone but what i'm trying to stress here is too many people get caught up in the you know worrying too much about the value of the property tomorrow and i talk about this all the time what's the property going to be worth next week or a year from now if you're buying for the right reasons, you you know, again, longer term time horizon, you're comfortable. It's as good a time as any to, to, you know, so hopefully this little, you know, uh, screen in itself gives you an idea of, you know, what's happened over the market. And, you know, the Jeff, market, again, is expecting 5% next year. So to add another 5% to that. 
this yep. doesn't this doesn't tell you exactly how bad it is. This tells you how much uh, appreciation you missed out on. You missed out on two hundred five thousand dollars of appreciation. You would have dropped the principal by thirty thousand. So you'd owe about with a thirty year fixed, you'd owe about two seventy on that. As if you borrowed three hundred, you would have put you know a five uh, say a three percent down. You borrow two ninety, so you would owe two sixty. You have $245,000 of equity. Now, if we overlaid here what has happened to rents in this time frame, they also have probably ticked up about 5% a year. So when we look at that, if we go from 3,000 to 5,000, uh, 300,000 to 500,000, you're what, a 40% increase? Your rents increased 40%. Your mortgage didn't. In fact, somewhere here around uh, 2020, you would have refinanced that 375, three and a half rate for a 275 rate, and your payment would have actually decreased. So when we talk about these things, it's anyone that tells you it's always a great time to buy, buy today, today is the right time to buy, bullshit. It, it's not always the right time, but there's no red flags telling us that now is the wrong time. So if all those other dominoes line up, other things being equal, you want to get these factors in your favor as as soon as possible. You know, Jeb, we're already here. We can we can look at a couple of these other charts here and show. We talk a lot about the the different generations, um, yep. and we talk about millennials. We're here in in this year, so we have two more years before we get to peak millennials turning 33. And if you look back to 2006, this was where we hit. Uh, peak Gen X and they fell off a cliff. This is 2004, 2005, 2006. And the chart I've been looking for and Barry being the genius that he is had this one. So this is household growth. Yep. So they're decreasing right as home completions were shooting through the roof. Yep. Now we have the exact opposite. Even with increasing home completions, yep. we have more household growth then go, we have go back to the chart before because I think it's important to to note what you just said there. So if you see what is it the the where was it the the largest drop um, since 1946? It was right here, right? So if you see Josh's little cursor on the screen right there, those home buyers, those people born that year, would have essentially been prime buying age about the time of the last crash, right? So when Josh goes to the next chart, you see that drop off, right? It, it translates right into 05, 06. The blue is those buyers coming into the market as prime buying age. The yellow, as you can see, are home builders building property. So way more homes built than people actually becoming prime buying age. Now you have the opposite. Now, many of you probably understood that the first time Josh said it, but I think it's just when you're looking, going back and forth on that graph, it's important to know what you're looking at. So again, it's not the the complete answer. It's just a piece of the puzzle, right? The puzzle has a lot of pieces here, guys, just a piece of it. And so if you go back here and, and look at this, I don't expect 11, 18, and it's looking like year over year, the last numbers from CoreLogic, which are their projections are terrible. Their data is really good. It's a paired sales analysis. Anytime someone tells you about median home prices, median home prices are flawed on the way up and on the way down. Yeah. Uh, uh, an analysis like Case Schiller does is they look at the same homes selling over time and how those change. So same bed and bath count, same lot, same neighborhoods. And they're saying 20%. So 
I'm hoping it moderates soon, but again, we're looking at an even bigger number. Now, no one wants or thinks that can continue forever, but when you look at the supply-demand imbalance, when supply is limited, demand is high, prices go up. I think it's pretty reasonable that we look somewhere in the three to 6% in the foreseeable future once things get under control. So again, now we're up here in the $500,000 range. If you go forward for five years at 4%, you're looking at another $200,000. Well, the best part is 2022 is not even on here. Yeah. Right. So, so add another, I don't know, let's be, let's be modest and say 10% on the bottom of that thing. So that takes that 505 up to 550 at that point. So yeah, anyway. Lots, lots of good data in there. Um, data can be used to, to manipulate and mislead. So always be careful. But all of that data is what gets missed anytime someone wants to tell you that there's a housing crash coming. There is no housing crash coming. The thing that can cause a crash is a massive wave of foreclosures. Most everyone is in homes at very low loan to values with low mortgage rates that they can easily afford. Homeowners are in a better position than renters. Feel bad for renters who over that same time frame have watched their rents go up 50% and they have no protection. There's, yeah, there's no, no equity. They don't, they don't have a fixed payment. They don't have it. You know, they're not looking at their 2015 payment. They're looking at their 2023 payment. So you don't make decisions out of fear of missing out. You don't make decisions uh, because I have to do this under pressure. Um, but as soon as it is reasonable in your life and you are able and capable of buying and qualifying, that's when you do it. Yeah. And, and I'll leave you with the average homeowner in 2021 gained $55,000 in equity. Simple. I mean, and that's not counting paying down the principal, not counting the down payment they put down initially, you know, how much equity they have in their property. You've heard us talk about $185,000 on average of tappable equity. It's because of, you know, that's why, again, homeowners have a greater net worth, 44 times greater net worth than those of renters. But anyway, we're moving on. No, we're not going to move on because you said something amazing. $55,000 in uh, home increased home equity last year. What is the U.S. median income right now, Jeb? I wouldn't have known this. I Googled it. Median income? Hmm. $62,000. I know I was going high, but I didn't want to be too. I, I would have I said 50. I didn't want to I'm believe thinking, it could be under $50,000, but. I'm thinking 50. So I'm like, 55 is probably more. That's why I looked it up. I'm like, holy geez. That's more than adding two of the median incomes uh, in for a household in pure savings. Now, granted, we've talked about it. Home equity isn't savings. I can't put my debit card in or my ATM card in and pull that out and go spend it. It's not spendable, but it is real wealth. If you need it, you can get it in a reverse mortgage. You can sell the house. You can sell and downsize. It's more of like emergency wealth. Um, just ask yourself the question, would you rather be the homeowner that has an extra $55,000 year over year or the renter who gets to pay an extra 10% monthly year over year? No. Yeah. And last thing I'll mention from what, you know, that, that, uh, the zoom that we watched earlier is that, you know, he does talk about, you know, the increase in mortgage payment due to the rise in rates. Right. And so in his example, I, I forget what it was. If, I don't know if you have the, the, the chart there where he pulls it up, but essentially the, the increase in mortgage payment because rates have gone up was 700 bucks or something. Um, but then he also talked about wage growth during that last year as well, being like 11.7% or some, some exact number, which meant 
you know, the the homeowner who is buying that property increase their wealth by or their monthly um, income by a thousand dollars. So they were actually, even though their mortgage payment is significantly more now, that the rise in wages actually kind of counterbalances it. And and granted, we know gas has gone up, we know inflation, we know everything has gone up. So it's not a true measure, but it's not also um, you know exactly seven hundred dollars more expensive than it was either because of those bumps in income. But nevertheless, let's uh, let's talk about some other stuff here. We got a, uh, an interesting one here, Jeb. Big okay. G, big G. That's a, it is. It's not necessarily that big of a B in his little thing there, but it's big G. So in California, own my home with uh, my partner 50-50. Can he transfer his fifty percent to me without triggering a property tax assessment on the house? Um, the answer, so, so since you're the, I mean, since you're on title, um, it depends on if you have anything on there that, that states the current ownership of, of that partnership. Now, sometimes escrows now, Josh, you can correct me if I'm wrong on this. I'm, I'm really kind of winging this question here, but I think this is how it works. Anytime you're a, uh, a, not community property, but if you're like joint tenants or something, I think you have to declare the amount that you owe or that you own um, as part of that that ownership. Um, so in that case, if if there is a transfer, I believe it could uh, trigger the reassessment. Um, now, if it were community property or something like that, where you own it together, there is no um, declaration as to the percentage owned or what have you. I think if it gets transferred, then there is no no trigger at that point. What, what and for, are your... for, for those of you playing along at home, remember, this is California. California is goofy. If you're in any yeah, of the other no. 49 states, ignore what we're talking about. So um, certain transfers are excluded from reassessment. So the answer here is maybe. Who is, what is the relationship? A spouse? Absolutely, we can remove a spouse. Um, is, it a, uh, is, is it your grandfather? Do you have a parent-to-child and a grandparent-to-child exclusion? So there's any number of exclusions. So I think pull up. partner is partner but maybe i'm if if jeb and i are business partners and we go buy a property and he deeds his interest over to me i'm going to get reassessed on that half of the property my half i'm not getting reassessed on so um the fun part about this is you cannot get a straight answer out of anyone if you talk to a real estate attorney they're going to tell you well it's kind of a little bit of a gray area here's how it should go call the assessor's office i can't give you legal advice um, look at the preliminary change of ownership report in your county. You can download it from the assessor's website, see all of the exclusions and see if you think any of them apply. If none of the exclusions apply, you're most likely going to get reassessed on the half that you do not currently own. And, and, and let me tell you, most, most counties are aggressive in this because they want their money. I transferred my property out of my personal name into a trust provided all the information they needed and they still tried to reassess me until I, I had to basically file for a, um, uh, whatever it is. Uh, what am I looking for, Josh? Like a hearing hearing, um, and provide documentation to the, you know, to them. And then they finally just said, okay, we get it. It's right. And so had I not fought it or had I not known what I was doing essentially could have got reassessed. And we're talking, I mean, there was a big change in from the time I bought that property to when I transferred into a, a trust. So it, the property taxes would have gone up significantly at that time. So I'm not sure how much help we provided there, Big G, but uh, hopefully, um, you know, talk to somebody, you know, 
in one of those literally go to the assessor's office and download the preliminary change of ownership report it's a two-page document the first page lists all the exclusions and see if you think any apply to your relationship with your partner and yeah uh, and some of them are hard to understand so you might need somebody to help you explain them to you so anyhow there was a question up here josh that we skipped over initially i'm going to go back to it real quick just i mean it's kind of along the same lines of what we've talked about but should sellers hold and rent versus sell if they can so I don't know what the hold and rent means, um, like hold it and rent it out versus selling the property. I'm assuming if it's an investment property, if you can afford to keep the property and rent it out and it makes sense, absolutely. That's to me is always the right answer. I mean, I can't tell you how many clients I've had in my career. In fact, I can name one from last year where she was selling her property and buying another. I tried to talk her into keeping her property. She bought it back and I helped her buy it in 2011, I think. Um, and it was a foreclosure at the time. She got it really inexpensive. She paid down the mortgage, not really taking anything else out on it. And I said, listen, just rent it out. She wanted to sell it, wanted to take the money and do other things with it. It's a gold mine. I mean, that property has gone up significantly and it's in a market that is highly desirable. And it, the, the right answer is always keep it if you can keep it. But if it financially you can't, then I get it. Um, but the idea of selling it in this market, selling it and doing what, right? I mean, that's what we always talk about. Are you going to sell it? Or are you going to sit on the cash? If it's an investment property, you potentially have taxes on it. If it's, if you haven't lived in it in your primary, um, as your primary in two of the last five years. So if you are going to reinvest that money. Can you find a property that you, you know, you want to transfer it into? Can you meet the deadlines required to avoid potential tax consequences? All of these things are, are things you need to consider if you're uh, if you're going to pull the trigger and sell anything. Um, there was see. just just a quick one here, Jeff. There was a follow up. Someone had mentioned that Big G should do a 1031 exchange. Um, 1031 exchange is not an option. Um, unless you are buying the partner out and they are taking their proceeds and buying another property, you would still be buying their interest. The 1031 exchange protects them from taxation on the profits from their half. It doesn't do anything to protect you from reassessment. There you go. Um, logical thinker, for every 1% rise in mortgage rates, does it roughly result in a 10% reduction in the mortgage amount a person qualifies for, Josh? This would require some time with the spreadsheet. I would be shocked if it were that clean and neat of, of a calculation. Um, obviously, it does reduce the purchasing power. So the example um, that Barry used, Jeb, um, what what was the uh, what what was the purchase price? Was he using the median at three eighty five? Was he using like I thought he was using five hundred as the purchase price? I don't remember. I I, what, I have it. I can go back through it, but I can't do it right now. In yeah. that instance, it was a six hundred and ninety six dollar increase in the payment, and his hypothetical borrower made a little over nine thousand dollars a month. So that's less than a ten percent increase in the debt to income ratio. It's a six seven percent uh, increase in, in the debt to income ratio. I don't think it would cut ten percent off of your purchasing power. Um, but it also comes down to what other debts that, that you have. So difficult one to answer. I don't think it's as clean as 10%, but I don't think 10% is a horrifically bad number either. It's probably somewhere in that ballpark. All right, good stuff. Um, let's see, we've got some quite, we got Willings in here looking for, uh, for uh, what's her name? The Wyatt, 
why yeah why is it ashley wolf why does willing still have a christmas tree over there in uh in his dude it's always christmas and he lives in the north pole i got you. um carly carly says if i have a four percent mortgage is a refine not in my future josh so you often talk about the 40-year downtrend in interest rates um, going back since 1982. We've seen rates rise and we've seen rates go back down. Um, thoughts on that trend line staying in intact, if you will, in, in the current environment? I don't see how the trend line holds um, in the in the near term just because um, if you look at the technicals on the 10-year treasury, um, we don't have really any support here from 2.6 all the way to 3.25. Now, 3.25 was where we peaked in 2018, but again, that down channel that's coming down, this peak should have been lower than the last peak, and it's probably going to end up somewhat similar to that unless something really changes. Now, I remember in 2018, everyone was saying, nope, this is the end. Like you can literally go back and search the headlines, RIP 20 or 40 year bond bull market, blah, blah, blah. We're gonna start seeing them. If we haven't seen them already, look around, read the Wall Street Journal, Barron's, Fortune, Bloomberg, whatever you want. Someone's writing the article as we speak. So the question becomes, has something underlying everything changed? No, we're just exiting a really weird period where the low was exceptionally low based off of government manipulation. Unwinding that is going to push the the high higher than it otherwise would be. Um, and I would be stunned. Normally, the yield curve inversion that we discussed last week um, precedes the onset of recession by about 16 months. That's an average over the last 30 or 40 years, but it's been decreasing. So my expectation would be by the end of this year, there's a high likelihood of being in recession. At that point, the Fed puts all these plans on hold. The plans sound great right now. You can say how strong the economy is right. and how they can withstand selling uh, mortgage bonds and increasing rates. Well, they waited too damn long and were too accommodative. They're going to get too tight. They're going to force us into recession and the same thing that happened in 2018. So. People, uh, you know, I, I had to quote someone today. It was literally, and this was not a, it's not a, a terribly qualified borrower. It makes really good money. Credit score wasn't what we had hoped for. Down payment wasn't huge, and it was a high balance loan. The rate was 5.99% with a point. The best rate on my rate sheet was 599 with him paying a point. So when you look at that, he's going to have an opportunity to refinance. Yours at four. I would bet we'll have an opportunity to refinance. Do I think that's later this year? Do I think it's next year? I'm not that aggressive in my bet, but if we flash forward sometime in the three to five year window, and I'm not saying it's going to take that long, but somewhere in the next three to five years, we're going to have an opportunity for the people at 4% and above to refinance. Now, the people that are at three and a quarter, three and a half, that might be your interest rate for the rest of, of your life. I'm not betting that it is, but it could be. Good stuff. Um, Jose has a question here. Is it a good strategy to make double your mortgage payment on the very first payment of a 30-year mortgage? Does that knock off two years off your mortgage? No. Um, if you make one extra payment a year or you do bi-monthly payments, bi-weekly payments rather, um, which equates to one additional payment a year. So you got to do that you know, every year for 30 years. Takes your mortgage, I think, from what, 30 years down to 26, Josh? Something like that? Four years? Five, yeah. Somewhere in there? Yeah. yeah. So you got to make one extra payment every year for basically 
30 years in it or 24 or whatever the number is, it takes four years off your mortgage. So making it one time isn't going to do very little. It's it's might make knock a month off or th- what have think you. about think about why it happens, Jeb. That first on a five hundred thousand dollar mortgage at four percent, that first payment is about seven eight hundred bucks at the most goes to principal. Right. So it's like getting a seven or eight hundred thousand dollar smaller loan, but continuing to make that higher payment. Uh, if we ran the numbers, it's probably one maybe two months max that it would cut off of the the life of the loan. There you go. Uh, Jay Homeboy, how much does baby bonding leave affect my ability to buy a house? I'm an employee at a company that supplements what the state pays to make sure I continue 100% of my base salary during my leave. Josh, I go home a couple weeks, months, whatever. Does it affect my ability to qualify? It should not. It can. So who should it not impact? If you're a salary if you're an hourly employee and you're 40 hours a week, even if you get fairly consistent overtime, so variable income can be impacted by this. So let's say you have a $50,000 base and you make $50,000 a year commission, you take six months off to bond with your child. Well, we don't know what your commissions look like in the last six months. And you could say, well, commissions should be the same. They should be consistent. Well, imagine you sell mortgages. Are most mortgage guys making the same commissions now as they were six months ago with lower interest rates? No, they're not. So that that can present a problem for an underwriter. Um, if it's overtime and the overtime has been really consistent prior to that and the employer says, hey, they work eight to 10 hours a week of overtime, no problem. But for anyone who has a stable, non-variable income, that time is not off, it's not gonna impact you at all. We are probably gonna need to get something in writing from the employer, a verification of employment, documenting the, the leave date and the time off and when you started back so we can sort of exclude that from the numbers and see why your W-2 was a little bit low last year, year to date, uh, pay stub is a little bit low, but it can all be explained. All right. Good stuff. I'm going to take this question serious um, and just let you answer part of it here, Josh. Um, Mr. Willing is uh, doing LO training. So the question is, can you lead a healthy life in this field? So if you had to be a mortgage broker again, is that the path you would choose based on what you know now? Um. There are, I'll preface it by saying there are things about my job that I love. I like coming here and doing this. I like educating people on how it works and how to get the leverage of owning real estate in your favor to help you build financial security over a life. But the actual day-to-day of this job is is awful. The It's just, it's awful. There's no two ways about it. So not only that, and then you have the boom and bust cycle. I didn't, I didn't need my income to be as good as it was in 20 or 21. And I don't enjoy sitting here having to project and see where things go out. It would be awesome if you could go like, here's the thing. My pay is not based off of my performance. I could be awesome in a year when rates are five and a half percent and home prices are really high. I could have been shitty in a year when rates were two and three quarters and got paid through the moon. So for me and maybe different personalities are different. I would love to be in an industry where I could be paid off of my performance versus market factors having as much of an impact. And if anyone doubts that, like I think I'm really good at my job, but if anyone doubts that that the market has as much to do with your income, I mean, it's all magnitude. Someone that's really good is going to make tons of money in a good market, and they're still going to make money and get by in a bad market. Mm-hmm. But we have people who are terrible at this business who do well in a really good and easy market, and then they're gone and washed out in a bad market. Right. So that's the difference. If you're good and you're a professional and you're committed to it, you're going to be fine. But 
it's hard. Life is hard as a 100% commission salesperson if you work for someone else or as a basically 100% commission business owner myself. So not only do I have to bring in deals to pay my bills, I have employees that count on me paying their bills. And I don't mean that I'm giving them handouts like welfare. They're here working the same as I am, but that falls on my shoulders of making payroll every month. So the, the stress and the worries and the concern, you know, one of my favorite people uh, on the internet is a guy named Scott Galloway. Check him out on YouTube. He's a professor at, uh, I think, NYU, some, somewhere in New York City. A tech guy that take, taken a couple of companies public and made tons of money. And he says, the logical thing to do is get a good degree, go work for a big company, do well, work your way up the food chain, max out your get 401k. Get a pension, max out your 401k. Yeah. It's boring. It's terrible advice. It doesn't sound fun to a 25-year-old or even a 30-year-old. But when you're you're closing in on 50 and you look back and you go, that wouldn't have been bad advice to take. Yeah. The only advice I have to give you is that it's not as flexible as you think it is with any of it. Real estate, mortgage, whatever. So this, just keep this that old, in mind. This old ball and chain never leaves. It's always with you. There you go. Um, let's see, we got some more questions here. So Michael says, should I list my house a little above market value? I would ask you why. So if market value is, let's just hypothetically say 300,000, you want to list it at 310. Like what is the reason for wanting to list it a little bit more? I don't know that there's anything wrong with it. I'm just saying, why is it? Because you don't think you're going to get that price. It's almost like a scarcity mindset in trying to do that. What I've learned in this business over the last couple of years. I mean, it goes even goes back further than that, but more more so in the last couple of years is that if you price it right, typically speaking, it's going to go higher than you think it's going to go anyway. It's, it, that's what I've seen happen. Um, but I've seen the opposite happen and homes that um, are priced high to start with end up maybe selling at that price that you listed it at and maybe not going above it. And, and so it really depends. It's, you know, it, it depends on how much far above it you're looking. I mean, we're talking $5,000, probably not a big deal. If we're talking 50,000 or, you know, depending on what that actual percentage is, might not be the best advice. I would say, I mean, that's one thing you're doing. If you're, if you have a real estate agent that you're paying a commission to do, use their advice. They're the expert. They're the person that you're essentially counting on. And if you're not counting on them, then you need to find somebody else that um, can give you guidance. But um, that's my thought. But I will say in this market, I've listed a couple houses higher than I thought they should list for. And they sold above that price too. So, um, but things are changing in the environment a little bit. And like I mentioned to begin with, we don't know the effects of it yet, right? It takes weeks, months for some of this stuff to play out. And right now we're just kind of, you know, um, putting our theories out as, as to what we think is going to happen. Time is eventually going to tell us. So, uh, you know, listen to your agent. That's I, my, that's my advice. Yep. Jeff, I got a couple of thoughts here. When I saw the question pop up, I said, what we need is a stream deck where we can, um, just play the best recorded answer to this question that you had the 10 times we we've answered it because there was one that came up when we were at a different point in the show and you had about 10 or 12 minutes to go into it um, the, the other week. And so first of it was like, okay, it's the same question, but um, we, it's interesting. We get slightly different answers every time and you had the longer, more detailed one. That was a great answer, but I, I love the one that you gave uh, a week or two ago when the, the gentleman asked if he should list his $350,000 house for $400,000. I don't know. I we, don't remember what I said. Enlighten me, please. 
Well, it would, it would bore everyone because you already answered the question. I'm going to get the recording and I'm going to get a stream deck and I'm going to go like the top right. 10 questions. I'm going to queue up where we just push and it plays the, the canned response. They'll wonder, hey, Jeb grew a beard. Hey, his beard's gone. It'll be, it'll Boom, be different. Just, should I buy a house? Bam. Bam. Uh, right good there. stuff. Uh, so, sound so like uh, Emerald. We, um, we've, we've got we've got the comment of the day and then the series. It's already it's day. already too early. So John Doe, he doesn't want to claim this, doesn't want to own this comment. He's watching from the Kinston Mall food court as if there Kinston is Mall's a Kinston Mall. Kinston Mall's closed, bro. Kinston oh, Mall's there was one? Oh, absolutely. I was stunned that there ever was one. Bro, you make it, was, it sound it like it's a one. shining back in its day. Okay. Well, he's there at the food court. He got some Grant Hills. He stopped at K's. These clowns want 15% interest for a 10-carat herringbone. No thanks. I'm not in. There's too many people here that have no idea what any of the backstory is. I am impressed that. that John Doe has been taking notes and knows all John Doe that. might be from Kinston. Could be. Uh, He's in Kinston. But now we have here, second we'll follow up here, another comment, but a serious one here that, that I had not really thought forward through. So Stephen says the Fed's creating supply destruction. The low rate fixed 30 has become the asset. And that's true, Jeb. How many people who would otherwise be considering selling are saying, hmm, I'm at 275, and if I sell, I got 475. I don't, right. I don't know that that's 80% of the sellers deciding not to sell, but is it 10%? Is it 12%? Is it 22%? There is a proportion of people that are just like, yeah, I, I'd be well, in the market at the right rate, but not at this rate. Well, so I, I, I'm doing a video. I mean, it's coming out on Monday and I, and I run through some numbers um, of potential sellers, right? And, and I take an example of some clients that I know that bought a house for say $750,000. We're able to get a rate just under 3%, uh, under 3% at 2.99%. Um, and so, you know, this is back before the market went bananas and, and their payment, let's see here, I have it written down because I did the video earlier, but their payment would have been you know, say they 750, they put 20% down. So they, they'd be financing a $600,000 mortgage. Their payment, $2,526 per month. Um, and taxes on that, you know, here in California, 781. So mortgage payment was $3,307 based on that, not counting homeowners insurance or any of that stuff. So, but those people today looking to buy a house, you know, 750 back then, three bedroom, two bath, you know, 1200 square foot house. The next house they need to move up into is at least a million two fifty to to give them a little bit of square footage more than what they have now. Might not even give them the square footage, but they're currently in a townhome at the moment to get a single family home that's probably comparable in square footage, but gets them a single family is at least a million two fifty. And there's honestly there's not even really many of them out there to begin with. But that million two fifty, if they put twenty percent down, they're financing a million. Today's rates or the rates that I used in this video was based off a 4.8 rate. Um, that payment today, $5,246. Their property taxes also went up, almost doubled to um, $1,302. Total mortgage payment, $6,548. That's a 98% increase in their current payment. How many people are just going to say, you know what? Square footage, I don't know that I really need it. Why don't I just stay put where I am now? I've gained a lot of equity and not sell my property. That to me is the risk of these low rates is that it prevents people from selling and rightfully so. I mean, no pressure for anybody to sell, but I think it presents problems down the road if interest rates do stay high. And, and because 
you know, property tax, all of that stuff is more expensive today. So one of the funny things, Jeb, people always like to point back to, oh, you know, what's going to happen is second mortgages and assumable loans are going to get popular. Well, cool. All of the loans that were done in the twos and low threes, they're not assumable. They have a due on sale clause. So a second mortgage wouldn't work even if they were assumable, because when you've appreciated 40% in the last five years, uh, a second mortgage of 20, 30% is going to be required or a big down payment to assume that loan. Second mortgages are at even higher rates the first, then you start looking at the blended rate. So it's not really uh, a solution. But um, Jeb, I enjoy this when um, the comment section sort of works through things and gets things figured out before we need to get involved. So St. Rick says people need to exercise patience. Whether you can afford it or not, buying anything at the top is dangerous and irresponsible. So before you say it, let's follow the, the, the next one. Michael King comes in with selling at the top is responsible and safe. And thankfully, um, Teresa Peterson comes in with another comment, says, if you can predict the top, you should be living the good life on an island right now. We can go back and pull up the slide. Diana Olick is paid money by CNBC to be a housing expert. And for the last seven years has been predicting a top and would have cost anyone 40% appreciation. So I don't believe that St. Rick spends as much time analyzing the market as, as Diana Olick. So the, is the, there's a sentiment here that is not wrong. We talk about this. Is there a flashing or shining green light saying everyone jump into housing right now? Absolutely not. No, there's absolutely sure. not a red light saying it's dangerous and irresponsible. It's a yellow light saying, if the time is right for you, be prudent and be cautious. But there's reams of data saying that we're, we're not at a top. We certainly shouldn't expect appreciation going forward to be like we've seen the last three years. Um, but we can, for many reasons, expect appreciation similar to the average of the last 63 years, which is 4.2%. So um, the thing we talk about what's safe. Yeah, you know what, it would be safe for me to never leave my house, I wouldn't get in a car accident, I wouldn't get sick, it would be safe for me to have never gone on a date, never fallen in love, that's never the, that's probably the best comment you've ever made. That would be safe well, for a lot of people safe for the ladies, it would be safe <laughs> for the ladies, but you can be safe in a lot of ways and miss out on a lot of things. So definitely is the time to be prudent. Don't take anyone's advice saying, hey, jump in, you have to get a house and don't do it because, you know, you have a parent or a spouse saying we have to do it or we're never going to be able to do it again. It has to be the right time for you and you have to do it in a prudent way. And I think most of you over here are here trying to educate yourselves. And right. it, it doesn't, so you can it make the mean, decision, but it doesn't mean just listen to Jeb and I. Watch, no, watch no, 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 no. That's get other data. Get the, everyone's opinions. You know, I can't you stress enough what you just said. I mean, Josh and I's goal here is not to get you to buy a house. We don't benefit. Like, let's be honest. Like there's people watching from probably 50 different States here. We don't benefit from you buying a house in any way. You're the one you know, we're here to provide education. You do with it what you want. And, and hopefully we provide some guidance and you can make great decisions based off of it. And whether you decide to buy now, buy later, not buy at all, sell, whatever it is, just hopefully we provided the, enough information here to help, you know, inform you enough to make that decision. That's all it's about, right? Um, the podcast as well, same thing, uh, which is going to lead me into me asking 
you to hit a thumbs up if you find any value here. Um, you know, there's 282 people and 64 likes. So if you find any value at all, hit the thumbs up again, it does help, um, algorithms and helps us. And again, yep. Oh, I house cleaning item. I didn't mention this at the beginning next week. No show, no show next week. Um, I will be in Cabo San Lucas for spring break. <laughs> Who thought I thought spring break was over once I graduated college. No, um, if you have kids, your kids have spring break and you get to celebrate spring break with them. It's fantastic. I'm going to hijack the show and show Mr. Beast videos for two hours. That's fantastic. You should see if he'll come on. I'm sure he's from North Carolina. Is. Dude, he's from Greenville where I went where I went to school. So maybe we can get him on. If anybody Jeff, knows Mr. Beast, tell him I want I want to have the him king on. of Kinston wants Mr. Beast on. the Yeah, show. that's great. So, Jeb. You, there's another housekeeping oh. item that you failed to complete last week. And oh, yeah. You need to get to this week. Who won the T-shirt? Oh, let me see here. I have it. Hold on. Joshua. Joshua Lewis. It was Debbie Camacho Franco. Debbie Camacho Franco. And I have dropped the ball. I have not reached out to her to ask her her size. I assume that's a, a she. And you probably want to find out where she'd like it sent. I do. I need to do that. And I need to send Jennifer's out as well. So there is a T-shirt coming to you guys. Um, Sorry about that. Things get busy over here. Anyhow, uh, let's let's see what we got here. We've got some more comments. Um, uh, let's see. I mean, there's there's a lot of comments, not questions. Uh, Josh, here we go. Here's one. I don't even know if you know the answer to this. Can you get a construction loan to build on land already purchased with a different loan? What if the land is family land and existing and the existing land loan is not in your name? So in theory, can you can you get a loan to build a house on land that's not in your name, Josh? Um, all giant knows. So the land would need to be in your name. If there's already a loan against it, if you transfer ownership of the land, it most likely triggers the due on sale clause in that loan, which would mean that loan would need to be paid off. If the loan is in someone else's name, a lender most likely would not give you a construction loan in a second position against uh, uh, on a property secu already secured by an underlying land loan. They might make a new loan paying that loan off, but it sounds like this is just a portion of a parcel that is secured by that larger um, property. So there's, there's options and opportunities to make it work, but generally not in a second position. I wouldn't say there's no lender out there that would make a construction loan in a second position, depending on the equity in the land, the cost of the home. The land is absolutely going to need to get in your name. If there's a loan on that land in someone else's name, that's going to be problematic unless you split the land and that lender releases um, that portion of the land from the lease. So you have a really complicated situation and it's going to be difficult, if not impossible to accomplish. I'm going to click on this. I'm about to sneeze, so I'll let you read it. <laughs> Rianu Keeves, my favorite username, says, if my cousin helps with getting approved to a home loan, how can I remove them eventually, or is it possible to buy them off? Um, you can never remove them from that loan. You can replace that loan with a new loan that they are no longer on. You can take them off title to the property, and in that instance, they still are liable for the loan, and they have no ownership in the underlying property, which can be problematic for them. 
Um, so your best case, we did this for a bunch of people the last two years with rates lower, had someone co-sign for them, um, rates go down, they're in a better financial position, they can qualify on their own. The co-signer comes off a of title, comes off of the loan and is in completely relieved of all their liability. Good stuff. Um, let's talk about locking rates, Josh. Dominique says, been talking to my lender about locking in a rate less than 90 days from closing on a new build. My lender is saying to wait that it's too early to lock in due to home not being, I'm assuming, completed. Um, so Josh, thoughts on that, uh, advice, if you will. I think that's an interesting answer. We talk to a lot of people who are buying new construction and talking to us and talking to the builders lenders. Um, the builders lenders are, are employing some new strategies that I haven't seen um, buying forward commitments out 90, 120 days to lock in today's rates and offering terms um, that, that a lender who doesn't know that, hey, in June, I'm going to have 100 units that are going to need about you know $50 million worth of loans to secure. So they, that's an advantage that they have. I have a client who was very happy with us, was absolutely not going to use the builder's lender. The builder's lender called up and said, hey, we have a time machine. We can lock in the rates from last month because of this forward commitment. Um, so long way of saying most builders are, are dealing with this because they don't want deals falling out. They don't want rates to go up another three quarters of a percent. We get to closing in June uh, or July, whatever that shakes out to now. And Dominique says, I can't afford a 6% mortgage rate. So interesting that the builder's lender wouldn't, uh, or you're saying your lender. Um, so I would talk to the builder's lender, see see what they're doing and what they're offering and um, talk to your lender. Like a 90 day lock is expensive and rates are high. But at this point, um, you know, the expectation is there's nothing stopping them from going higher. Nothing's going to make us happier than we can show on here, as, come on here on a Wednesday and say, hey, here's the beautiful technical chart that says we've seen the end and we're now in a downtrend in interest rates. There's nothing on the horizon that I'm seeing that says rates are going to stop in increasing. Hopefully the pace of the increases slows down, but they're, they're going to trend up for at least the next three to six months, at least through your closing. Good stuff. Um, someone, uh, John asked again, did I end up buying a rental yet? No. Um, so many of you guys know I've, I've been looking at property, uh, rental property to buy. In fact, the market that I've been looking in, there just really hasn't been any properties that have come up. Um, it's interesting to me because here in California, most of the communities that you buy in don't have some restrictions uh, like, you know, in the CCNRs that limit investment properties that limit all of these different things that I'm coming into contact with. So uh, I'm getting emails of properties that I would potentially be interested in, but my agent's like, no, can't buy that one. They don't allow rentals there. You can't do this because of that. So it's interesting to see just different dynamics, but overall the inventory is very, very low in that market as well. Um, and there's a lot of investors buying and a lot of people just in general buying. So I'm not having any luck um, at the moment. So yeah, I put an offer in on on one. It's probably been about six weeks now, and didn't get it clearly. And uh, yeah, should have. I mean, it'd be interesting to see. I don't even know where rates are at this time. You know, initially when I was looking twenty five percent down, um, buying it on an investment property two hundred. It was a two hundred twenty five, two hundred fifteen, somewhere in that ballpark. Uh, purchase price. So loan amount was what one seventy something or somewhere in that ballpark. Rate was, I think, four point 
4.625 or something on an investment property at that time. It's probably 6% now. I have no idea. So I'm not even sure it, it, the cash flow makes sense at this point. It'd be interesting because nothing's come up. So I haven't had the numbers rerun, but still looking. Still Just pay looking. cash for it, Jeb. Jeb, I got an, an interesting one. Isaac tuned in late. He didn't uh, hear the update on our market, but he says yep. inventory is increasing on the West Coast and we're seeing more price reductions. So here's the thing. We always talk about um, all real estate is local. Mm -hmm. That could be possible. It is certainly not true on the West Coast. We're on the West Coast. Um, I have family in Washington. I have friends that do loans in Washington and Oregon. The entire West Coast is still appreciating at a very rapid clip. I write 25 to 30 pre-approval letters a week. And if we're lucky, one or two or three of those get accepted. Um, so are there, could you tell me there's an area where you could show me data where there's price reductions and home prices increasing? Absolutely. I'd love to see it. But it's not credible to say the West Coast when we do loans all through California and where I look at all on the West Coast, home prices um, are, are, are still continuing to go up. I haven't seen uh, more than the, the random price reduction. I did see one the other week where someone came on the market at a million eight and I'm like, that's aggressive and they're down to a million seven and still haven't sold. So do price reductions happen? Court sort of goes back to that discussion of did they price it right to begin with? Anything that comes on the market in our market, and when I say our market, from San Diego to Ventura, include the Bay Area, include Sacramento, include the Central Valley, your your multiple bidding situation. Multiple no, bidding yeah, situation, no, for sure. Price reductions. But I think you I mean it's important to know, can you see some price reductions in a market that is appreciating that people are making multiple offers? The answer is yes, absolutely you can. I mean, it goes back to what we discussed earlier. How do you price that property to begin with? There's a there's a ton of egregious sellers at the moment that think they have the best house in, in, in the world and they're just going to price it at some crazy number and, and see if the market can bear it. I mean, hell, I have a, a friend uh, that's a real estate agent. I sold a property in Irvine in the same community as he did uh, for one one. Um, his property, the only difference in his property was his property was detached um, versus being attached in the same community. There was a couple of them that are detached. His is single level too. That's important to know. So single level, detached. His was actually less square footage than mine. And I think he ended up, he priced it at a million four something. I sold it a million one. Hold on, let me back up. I listed at 850, sold at 1.1. We had a conversation. He goes on the market at 1.4, I think, somewhere in that ballpark. He ends up accepting somewhere between a million 350 and a million 375, somewhere in that ballpark. But it took about a month to even get that offer. And it ends up being a cash offer. So he was overpriced by, in my eyes, he did. I think he reduced the price a little bit, but either way, he ended up accepting less than what he originally had it on the market for because he had a big number, but he knew he had a big number and he was just testing the market. He said, Hey, if it sells great, if it doesn't, I don't really care. Um, and there you go. So, you know, there was somebody in here last week, Josh mentioned that I, I kind of addressed a, a similar answer to a question earlier when they, I think, I don't remember the number, but they said their house was worth like 350 and they wanted to price it at like 500,000 was was more or less what happened. And are you going to have people do that? Sure. Absolutely. You, you will have people do it, but it's not the norm, right? Those are one-offs. And when you have that, you're going to see price reductions 
on those homes. I mean, I look at the market here every single day in my market. And, you know, there are properties that sit a little bit longer, properties that do see price reductions. The question is, what percentage of the list price is it being, you know, reduced? And how much was it overpriced to start with? Those are things that are very hard to, to you know, come up with the right answer if you don't know it day in and day out. I mean, I have people all the time saying, hey, listen, you know, I saw this property just come on the market at a million dollars. Zillow is telling me it's worth a million one. You know, is it underpriced or is it, you know, whatever. Stop. Zillow, Redfin, all those guys don't use their numbers, you know, at face value. There's more that goes into it than, than just looking at those numbers. So just keep that in mind. Sorry. And he, he actually fo follows up and says, I agree right. there will not be a housing crash, crash, but definitely prices are going down. Not won't go, will go down, are going down. So Isaac, if you have a, a, a market that you have data on, I would love to see it. I do not know of one. And if you ask anyone in here watching this who is in the market making offers right now, they would love to know where the market is. Yeah, let's buy some property. Are, are going down. Like it's just, Jeb's looking at rental properties and each one is coming up at a, at a higher price than the last one, despite rates being higher. Um, is there pressure, downward pressure on the market that is not being reflected in prices? There is, because because I know with the people that I talk to on a daily basis, less of them qualify for the price of homes where they're at today. So a home that might've had 15 or 18 offers, maybe it has 10 offers today. It's still plenty to keep them going off the shelves right. quickly and at high prices, but it's certainly moderating. And if we see the trend continue and then there's three offers, I mean, three offers we've talked about is still a competitive bidding situation, but if you know there's three other offers on the property, are you as likely to bid as aggressively if you know there's 10 and there was 10 on every other one that you bid on? You're not. So when we say the hope or expectation is that we fall into a three to 6% annual appreciation, that's what we're talking about. I, I mean, don't, don't mistake anything we say in terms of analyzing the market as being hoping for the continued appreciation at the rates that we've seen. Right. I want things to normalize and normalizing a good way for things to normalize would be if we had five years of zero to three percent appreciation where they just stayed level no one's getting hurt prices aren't dropping but you're not seeing the prices pushed higher but what are we talking about there that's a perfectly balanced market where there's an equal amount of willing buyers and willing sellers and they agree that hey kind of here's where the market's at it just doesn't usually work that way it overshoots on the high side overshoots on the downside so Jeb's talked about the Cromford report out in Arizona. We look at multiple reports in California, county by county, every county. And I mean, you have to start thinking, what are my biases? What am I looking for in the data? If you're looking at most markets in the United States of America and thinking that home prices are coming down, like we all have biases. We would like to think that we don't. You know, one of the examples that I like to use, I saw a, a guy at a, a CrossFit certification he gave uh, a lecture on bias in programming. So if Jeb has a 500 pound bench press, he's probably gonna be biased to I programming bench presses all the time. If I love running marathons, I don't. I would be programming running in there all the time. So no one wants to admit that they have biases. If you don't own a home and you want to own a home and you would like prices to be lower and rates to be better, you're gonna see negative things that don't exist. Again, if you have the data, I would love to see it. I don't think it exists. No, with that, I mean, it goes the same thing that if, if you believe in, I mean, that's why, honestly, probably a lot of you guys are here is that we're, you know, we're, I wouldn't say hopeful is the right word. 
we're bullish on housing in general. So therefore, if you're a home buyer, you're likely here versus some of the other channels out there with doom and gloom. And that's okay, but just know the other side of it too. Like if you're watching the doom and gloom stuff, know the other side of the market. And if you're here, watch the other stuff and, and get what you want from that information and use it how you see fit. I think it's important to, to hear both sides of the argument, but know that again, data is easily manipulated um, to point towards your biases, um, you know, as we mentioned a moment ago. So get somebody that's out there actually selling property, hence myself, to give you what's happening with boots on the ground. I mean, I have a property I listed on the market today. Um, right, rates are up, right? We're at the highest point of rates in hell, at least three years. Uh, it'll be interesting. I priced the property what I thought it was worth in a market where comps are all over the place. So I'll be able to give you a really good indication of what the market's doing after this weekend, right? I mean, how many buyers are out there? How how quickly did it go? What are buyers doing in this environment? These are all things that, again, I like to bring to you because it's what, you know, it, it helps you as a buyer make the, you know, the, the best decision for yourself. So we'll do that as we have more information on it. You know, Jeff, here, here's um, yep. a comment that's actually there's there is a, a question or at least something that I can answer behind it. Patrick makes a good point. Here's a gem refinancing versus recasting. Mm -hmm. I get this question in an email probably twice a month. And especially now that rates are up when rates are level or down, people just think, hey, I owe four hundred thousand on my house. I inherited one hundred thousand dollars from my aunt that passed. I'd like to pay my mortgage down. And I want a lower payment. So if rates are the same or better yet, even lower, you just refinance, you bring $100,000 in at closing and you have a new lower interest rate and a much lower payment. When rates are higher right now, Aunt Pearl dies, leaves you $100,000, you're certainly not refinancing. So if you own, you come into a windfall, anything more than say $25,000, $30,000, the lender does not have to allow you to do a recast, but most of them will because they would like to keep the loan on their books. What does that recast mean? Well, yeah, Let, that's what I was going to tell you. Let's like, let's say it. you're you're two years into a 30 year loan. So there's 28 years remaining, 28 years of 12 payments and you owe four hundred thousand dollars. If you pay three hundred thousand dollars or pay it down to three hundred thousand dollars, your monthly payment on a fixed rate loan, if you have a variable like a five one or a seven one, it would adjust to account for the new lower principal and pay it off over the remaining term with a fixed rate loan your payment is set in your original note. Right. So you have to reach out to your lender and ask them to approve a recast that says, what with your interest rate and the new $300,000 loan balance would or should your payment be to pay it off over the remaining term of the loan? Again, I don't know that I've ever had a client um, try to recast a loan and be told no, but it's not it's not a guaranteed right in your loan documents, in your deed of trust, in your note. Um, you do have to ask them, but it, it's becoming more and more common um, for those that do want to pay down their mortgage and want to lower their payment by doing so. Yeah, and these are really good in situations. Let's talk about this for a minute because this is if you have a position or if you're in a position rather where you're selling a property and buying another property and you don't necessarily need the funds from your current home that you're selling to buy the next property, but the idea is that if it was sold, you would take that money and put it into the the next property. You can go out buy the next pro, you know, the the property, the upleg, if you will. And when your home sells, take that equity, go to your lender and say, hey, listen, I want to recast the loan. 
some lenders out there actually have a program that allow it to happen from from the get go. Take those funds and recast the loan, and that way you're not making it a contingent sell, so to speak, um, and getting your payment to adjust. So, just some some food for thought. You know, we have just a follow up on one of the earlier questions. Nate pipes in and says he's heard eight percent decrease in purchasing power for for one uh, percent increase in rates. And again, it sounds about right. Ten sounded a little high, um, but eight doesn't sound wrong. Maybe we'll uh, we'll break out the spreadsheet and run the numbers for you guys next week. It seems like uh, something you guys are in. Not next week, bro. We're off uh, next two, week. It's a two break weeks next from week now. It's a break next week. Um, let's see what we got here. So Alina signed her loan docs today. So congrats to you, Alina. Um, so got people asking, you know, South Jersey, Matt, can't start looking until October, FHA only. Do I have a prayer? Yeah, I think so. I mean, again, we. I think you're going to see more supply. I just don't think you're going to see enough supply to change the entire dynamic of what you know, the housing market. I think more supply just means less appreciation. It doesn't mean a downward trend in house prices. And I think that's important to, to wrap your head around. You're going to have more options, more homes to choose from. Buyer demand is not going to be quite as strong, but buyer demand is not going to go away entirely. That's what you need to keep in the back of your mind. So, um, so yes, I, I think you have, potential options then just you know you got to kind of gauge the market at that time and, and see what your options are and see what property is available to you um you know at that time let's see josh yeah, I, I had to go a, ahead here's a good one while, you, while you're looking for that one i, I like this one because we don't really oh uh, that, that's the one i was going to click on earlier yep yeah so anya says um how do mortgage brokers choose lending institutions do you have access to all i do not have access to all of them um, being approved with every institution would be uh, it would be a big task um, just in terms of man hours of maintaining your documentation with them. Some of them have broker agreements that I'm not willing to sign. They have really egregious terms in there. But what we do have for the most part, I probably have access to pricing for 95% of the lenders out there. So let's say there's a lender that I've never heard of. Jeb Loans is out there just offering amazing terms. I'm going to go, hmm, I wonder who these guys are. Is anyone else working with them, reaching out to my community? Are they good? Do they close on time? Are they easy to work with? Um, those are the things we're looking at. The easy one is to put it into a tool like Loan Sifter, where we put in the terms of your loan and your qualifications, and it comes back and gives us a tiered list of who has the best terms. And it's not always consistent. If you say, hey, I want to pay a point and buy my rate down, it could be one lender that has the best price. If you say, hey, I want a 2% credit to put towards my closing costs, it could be a very different lender. So we're looking at pricing, but at the same time, the lender with the best pricing in Loan Sifter on a day-to-day -day basis is almost always a lender I would never work with. The reason why they have that great pricing is they are awful to work with for me and for you. So they're trying to buy the market with lower interest rates. What do you got? You triggered something that I want to stress. I, I, trigger, I triggered you? Oh, boy, did you? Not me. So I have a property at the moment that's in escrow. I had the buyer use... Or the buyer came pre-qualified. So um, in this instance, uh, representing the seller and the buyer, buyer came to me pre-approved. I said, hey, listen, run your scenario by Josh. She got pre-approved. Josh said, I can't match basically the interest rate that she was getting quoted. Um, so Josh said, you got a, you got a good deal. Well, 
she ended up not using the lender that she had the pre-approval with and going with another lender. Let me just tell you about the experience that we've had. It has been less than desirable to say the least. Um, we were supposed to close, what, a week ago? A week ago yesterday. Finally got loan docs out today. And that's not the problem. A week's not a big deal to me, right? As long as there's Depending on the transaction, this transaction, it's not. Some transactions, no, it no, is. No, no, It was a 17-day close of escrow. And it's going to end up being probably 24 days. It should close tomorrow. They signed loan docs today. But here's the caveat. The loan officer on the other side, I had to go above his head and reach out to my network to find out if anybody knew a higher up in the company because I couldn't get this guy to respond to anything. So I was finally able to, to find one of my contacts that knew uh, the branch manager at this company. This is a big company. They're nationwide. Um, fortunately, they did. And he got involved. And fortunately, because he was involved, I got communication, to say the least. Um, and things started happening and what have you. And, and, and I, I am thankful for that person getting involved. But many people out there don't have those contacts. And I can tell you from the buyer, the buyer was super frustrated. She's regretting her decision the whole time. She almost and, lost the property because Jeff, I, I told her when we spoke, we could have matched the rate. We would have made like by the time I paid my team and overhead and, and errors, no missions insurance on the file, we would have lost money doing it. So she had really good terms. It was a lender she had closed two loans with before. And it's someone that I happen to know. Like a lot of times when I see numbers like this, I will call bullshit. I'd be like, you're going to have the same experience you're having with the current lender you are. So I called her back. And I went to give her the numbers and I go, hey, move forward with the guy you were talking to. Those are great terms. He's closed for you before. Um, and, and we got updated, refreshed numbers. She goes, oh, I actually just locked it in with another lender. They beat them by a quarter of a percent. And I said, please send me the loan estimate. I want to see that it says that it's locked. It's a major reputable national lender. She has a loan estimate that says that it's locked. There's no way they can get out of honoring those terms to her because they're incredibly well qualified. So they qualify. So you look at it and you go, I, I don't know. That lender that you're talking to is known for having really high rates. So my concern was that they couldn't uh, honor the rates. And you're saying chasing that eighth or a quarter percent better that she got, which was better than an amazing rate that she already had, has been very stressful for all oh, of you. I, I, she... She is, I, I know she's definitely lost sleep on this deal. I mean, we were we were very close to canceling um, the seller just because I couldn't get an answer from, I couldn't get the lender to convey to the client that she was actually approved. It was it was this mystery that, that everybody had to guess whether or not her loan was actually approved because we couldn't get the communication we needed. And, and the loan officer is new. Right. So the, the, the gentleman that I ended up working with or, or is helping me out ended up telling me this guy's new. Blah, blah. That's unfortunately what happened. And so this got me a long way of, of getting around to work with a pro, somebody that knows what they're doing, an expert. Because, again, had I not been the, the listing agent and the buyer's agent, I can tell you 1000% I would have canned this deal. The only reason I didn't is because I, was able to get involved 
and get to the bottom line. If I was just a listing agent on this, I wouldn't have taken the time to do all of that because I have backup offers. I would have just moved forward with the next offer. And you wouldn't they would have, have lost the property. You wouldn't have known the buyers in the way that you know them. She is super cool. They're really friendly. The fact that we had reviewed the file, she was getting the loan from someone. They're very well qualified and really cool people. So it was a unique situation in the in the way we had the view of everything and then the way it unfolded was just nuts. But leads me back to work with pro. So if you need a lender, uh, a realtor referral, I'll put a link on the screen. You can contact someone there. So again, it's important, but that's a real life example of what's happening right now that I think, you know, feel like you could use. Um, the, the answer to Anya's question is we're sorting by price and then searching for the best service technology programs among those that have the best price. There you go. Good stuff. Um, let's see. Uh, let's talk about, let's talk about, can you talk about your experience using a HELOC for an investment property or any clients that have done this? So Josh, anything you want to add on home equity lines of credit? So one thing that's important before Josh gets into his two cents on home equity lines, home equity lines typically adjust with the with the Fed funds rate. So as the Fed funds rate adjust, your home equity line payment or interest rate is going to adjust. So therefore, if you're expecting the Fed funds rate to take the uh, from us from a quarter to anywhere close to what they're predicting, three percent, two point five percent, anywhere that that home equity line is going to jump significantly over the next six months or so, Josh. Yeah. I'll let you get your piece in now. And and how does the rate work? So it's prime plus a margin and a HELOC on, on your residence, depending on who you get it from, could be prime plus zero all the way to prime plus one, depending on your qualifications. Once we kick it over to an investment property, your best case is prime plus one. You're probably prime plus two or three percent. So right now, no big deal. But when prime goes up three percent with those increases, the Fed funds rate, you can have an eight, nine, ten percent rate on that. Um, it's not something that I would necessarily love to depend on. If you're going to carry a balance on it, not the greatest. Um, I'd rather take a fixed rate second. Um, the terms on the fixed rate second won't look that great today. But if we flash forward, you know, six, 12 months, it's probably going to be a lot lower than what that HELOC is going to adjust to. Good, good stuff. Um, let's see here. Yeah. Um, I'm seeing a lot of people talking about buying, you know, when they, when they started the process, looking at interest rates, they were like 2.75. Now they're, you know, you know, fortunately Gautheman, Gautheman was able to get one under contract at 3.75, but many people are looking at rates today at 5%. I mean, hell, I have client, I won't call them clients, people that I'm helping at the moment, or I haven't really been lately just because the market has gone bananas, but I was helping them look at buying a property and making offers six months ago when rates were sub 3%, you know, 2.75% or something. That same buyer today is looking at 5%, Josh, and home prices are up. Hell, I mean, 10% since they started. It's, uh, yeah, it's it's going to be interesting to say the least on uh, on whether buyers like that continue to, to, to you know, try or if they just, you know, have the the mindset of I'll wait till things come back down because that has been the mentality for a lot of buyers over the years is I'll just wait 
right? I'm just going to wait till things come back down. I'm going to wait for home prices to come back down. Now I'm going to wait for home prices and interest rates to come back down because it wasn't just one thing. Now it's two things. And so don't get caught up in, in, you know, the waiting game, you know, obviously not, not putting you on pressure, not putting pressure on you to buy something immediately, but just, you know, make the best decision for you. So, um, Josh, I saw another good question here. Is there anything you want to click on? Oh, here we go. This is something I want to talk about. Sorry. This is, I wanted to start the show with this. Um, I keep hearing over and over again, people talk about or comment on my videos. Hey, my friend told me they're a mortgage professional, you know, they're, um, I won't say professional, they're in the mortgage business. And um, they said all their, all their loans they're doing are uh, interest only loans, interest only arms at that. So let's take a minute here and talk about arms. What is an arm loan to begin with? Are you seeing a lot of them? We've talked about that before. Interest only arms, are they popular at the moment? And then just kind of maybe pros and cons. Jimmy, good question. It it depends on the type of loan and who you're getting it from. So we talked about this last week. Until very recently, um, our portfolio lenders, so lenders that are doing non-QM loans, those aren't portfolio, but lenders doing non-QM loans love um, to have uh, a hybrid arm that's fixed for five or seven years versus the interest rate of a 30-year Portfolio banks and credit unions love to have a hybrid arm. Some of them will not do a 30-year fixed. Um, So some of the unique jumbo product falls into where there's a big incentive to take a 5-1 or a 7-1 arm. So when you're looking at a half percent savings, it absolutely makes sense. So let's give you a couple examples. Jeb and I, when this came up two, three weeks ago, we priced a few things out. And for your standard Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, $500,000, $600,000 loan, there was no benefit. Like it was literally a note rate to note rate. It was more expensive. Right. I priced one this morning. We have two lenders that now look very different than everyone else that I don't know where they're selling these loans or how that market changed. But on a standard Fannie Freddie, it was about three eighths, almost a half percent better on a five one arm. So it comes down to the average tenure of home ownership now is 11 plus years, closing in on 12 years. But the average duration in a loan is after the last few years, it's, it's decreased, but call it four to five years. So for most people, a 5-1 arm, a 5-6 arm, and the one or the six just means it does it adjust monthly or every six months after the fixed period. The five tells you it's fixed for five years, seven years. So you're buying insurance against higher rates for the next five years. If you move or rates drop and you refinance, you win. You, you paid about a half percent lower interest for that time frame. If you want the seven year, it's probably gonna be a little less savings um, than that. But I can tell you, I priced a jumbo loan earlier today. It was 4.75 if they took the 30 year, it was 4% on a 10-1 arm. Now, when you're talking a 10-1, like that's a no brainer. Like for 99% of people, fixing a rate for 10 years is more than enough insurance against higher rates. There will be a refinance opportunity somewhere in the next 10 years, or you're going to sell and move uh, away from that home. So those are the things that you're looking at and measuring. Just do a side-by-side comparison. We talk about the numbers never lie. Here's what the 30-year looks like. 
here's what the five or seven or 10 year fixed looks like. How much am I saving on a monthly basis? And is that to me enough compensation to take on the interest rate risk? Again, with a 40 year bull run in interest rates, to me, I think for a lot of borrowers, it is. But we have to run the numbers on your specific scenario with your qualification and see, are we getting that half percent savings to, to a 30 year fixed? Now, and, and go. Let's, let's talk about Let's not talk about right now rates. I mean, you, you didn't even touch on this part, but are you seeing a lot? Because the worry for a lot of people is that it, something repeats of what happened before, right? And and you and I know that's not going to happen, but people's argument is, well, what happens is when home prices decrease, not going to happen anytime soon. And these people's arms, their their adjustable rate mortgages have to adjust then they're going to be in a position where, you know, they're going to have to sell or they're not going to be able to refinance or whatever. So are you seeing more people do 30 year fixed terms? Or are you seeing more people do, you know, shorter adjustable terms? The majority of clients are not comfortable with anything but a 30 year fixed. So a minority of clients can do the calculation. And it's funny, if you're a first time buyer, the thought is most people know uh, your first home, it's not your dream home. You're not going to be there forever. So you can go, yeah, in my perfect world, I'm there for six or seven years. And if you run the numbers, a 5-1 arm, the adjustments are capped in most situations. You're going to guarantee that you have a lower cost of ownership out to at least seven, if not eight or nine years in a worst case scenario. But most people, when we run those numbers, they look at it and they go, it's not it's not enough savings. I want the 30 year fixed. So in, in essence, it's like a 60 year old buying a 30 year term life insurance policy. You don't need to insure your life to age 90. You might need a 10 year policy to insure your life through the rest of your earning years. So it, you're just looking at what your risk tolerance is and what is the savings or what is the cost of of having no risk of, of a higher interest rate. There you go. Um, Chris has a question. Jeb, can I get a $100,000 HELOC on my rental, then sell it and save on capital gains tax or 1031 and don't pay any capital gains tax? No. Uh, because of, of you know, it's based off what you purchased it for your base, if you will, and what you sell it at. Um, and then they, they subtract. Those are the numbers, um, if you will. So if you pull cash out or you do something else, it's still factored into all of those calculations. So hopefully that um, answers that for you. Uh, Maddie, thank you, sir. Um, tip jar passing around to, to fund Jeb's margarita fund for next week. So um, I'll be in Cabo next week, guys. Uh, I will not be here for uh, the live. At the moment, Josh isn't going to be either. Um, so we're going to take a week off. This is going to be one of our uh, last year. I think we, what we say we did 40, 48, um, 48 lives last week. So we yep. missed a total of four. Um, so maybe this is one of the four, this is our, our second quarter miss or our first, you know, maybe the first quarter miss. Cause we didn't miss any in the first quarter. Anyhow. Um, thank you, Maddie. And that, that's a new profile picture. I think they're, uh, looking all, all sharp, man. Dressed up. Looking good. So, Hey, just a couple yep. of follow-up comments. And I, I like to get the pulse of, of the room here. So Jimmy yep. Orozco says five years of gamble with, with a uh, frozen crying face. Yeah. And that's the way a lot of my clients yeah. look at it. So cool. I can save $275 a month for the next five years and then 
pucker to wonder what's happening at five, six, seven years. Most most people do think in, in terms of, of that. And then YouTube Car Spotter's Guide follows up arm loan good. Well, impossible to answer just is it good or bad, but then he follows up, we're only here for 10 years till the kids are out of high school and then we're selling or do I just go with the five year 30% fixed? Again, have your lender run the Not numbers. Not a 30% fixed, that would be an awful 30, loan. 30 year fixed, 5% yeah. 30 year fixed. Yeah, yeah, don't take a 30% fix. Don't Somebody is trying fix. to- Take an arm. <laughs> if they're quoting you a 30% rate, take the arm. Yeah, but no, sure. in this in this situation, get the numbers on a seven-year arm. If you only need, you feel like you need 10 years of security, take the seven year. It's gonna have a lower cost out to 10 and you're probably gonna have a refinance opportunity in the middle. I also like this comment, Nate comes back and says, my mortgage is 2.75%. Two, I didn't buy a house, I bought a coffin. Yeah, so well, that's um, the mentality behind a, a common, lot of people at the moment. A common, common thought. Yep. Uh, let's see, what else we got here? Um, how about this? You want to answer since the answer is the same for both of us. Cindy, the juggle goddess says it's a bit off topic, but question since you guys are YouTube influencers. Wow. Jeb is now an influencer. I don't like the word influencer. Your, your video quality is good. What camera do each of you use? So using um, a Sony a7 III on um, the camera. But honestly, it's more about the lens than it is the camera. Uh, the camera obviously is, is good. Um, Sony makes good cameras for for video um and photography but it's it's all about the lens on these cameras so uh this is a uh what is this one uh 1. 1.4 um uh sony um i can't think of the name of it at the is moment vario tessar no it's the, oh there's another one they're fancy yeah so here's what here's what happened jeb got the camera and i loved how pretty he looked on camera so i bought the same camera but i got a better lens mine's a sony 1.8 35 millimeter and he got jealous that i oh. looked so good so he went and one-upped me and bought a, a lens like twice as nice as mine yeah yeah and the lens was was not inexpensive on this this is a 1.4 24 millimeter so that's what I was looking for. I, it's what, right in front of me. I couldn't you see it. Pay, what'd you end up paying for it? The lens. Uh, the lens was like a thousand. I bought the lens used. I, I think I paid a thousand for the lens. My, um, my cheapy lens was six. New, it's so. yeah, new. It's like fifteen hundred bucks. I think twelve hundred thirteen somewhere in that ballpark. Anyhow, um, yeah, good stuff. Um, clarity, clarity is what it's about, guys. Let's let's just continue the discussion on arms here. So, say Bunsavath says. Are you crazy with arms? Fed rates are going up like crazy. So remember, the Fed will be done hiking rates in the next 18 to 24 months. Worst case, I think it's going to come much sooner than that. Yeah, so I let's say that. they they do what they want in the next 24 months. They think they're going to go from a quarter to three and a quarter, three and a half. We're talking about a fixed rate for five to seven years. So logically, the numbers make sense, but it has to be comfortable for you. So say if I have that conversation with you and I pencil them out side by side, you're going to look and say, no, thanks, bro. I don't want that discount. I'm not comfortable with it. And that's the right answer. But there are people who are absolutely comfortable with it as long as they understand the risks and the probability that there's not much risk at all. It can be a good way of saving money. There you go. Um, yeah, the, 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 the years of two and three 
year adjustable rate, interest only, that sort of thing, those aren't um, really around, at least that I'm aware of. You might have some non-QM doing something like that. And some um, banks and credit unions will do them, but they're very restrictive on them. It's yeah, high net worth, well-qualified borrowers. Yeah, let's talk about what that actually looks like in some cases, though. If, if many banks, if you're doing a non-QM loan, chances are you've got a pretty decent down payment. You're not able to go in there with 3.5% down or you know a, a super small down payment on many of these. So most of these people are pretty well-qualified, which to me I think is important to know. Everybody wants to talk about markets adjusting, prices going down, all of that, right? That's important to know. But but understand, as if prices do go down, let's just think for a minute. Let's just say that does happen or, or did happen. Prices went down. The average homeowner, we mentioned it earlier, gained $55,000 in equity last year. The average homeowner has about $185,000 in tappable equity. So home prices go down. So say you, you bought a house for $500,000, and let's just say it dropped by 20%. That home is now worth 400,000. And you bought the home for $500,000 a year ago. That home is now, um, well, we won't even take factor in the appreciation during that time. Uh, so you have, you know, the, the, the down payment, say you did FHA, you only put three and a half percent down on that, on that $500,000 property, but you gained $55,000 in equity last year. So you've got equity in that property. I just went around in a circle and I don't know that made any sense there, guys. So bear with me for a moment. What I'm saying is the property value drops. That permits that person's payment doesn't fluctuate, right? It's a 30-year fixed payment or a five-year fixed in this case or seven-year, whatever they did. Payment doesn't change. Now, let's say that person, you know, is thinking of, of selling or was potentially thinking of selling. Do you think they stay put? Or do you think they sell at a lower price? My experience tells me that those people likely stay put and don't do anything until prices come back up, right? You know, Josh just said before, prices are sticky to the upside, which means if somebody buys a home at 500000 typically speaking, they're not willing to sell it for any less than they bought it for unless they absolutely 100% have to. And so in this case, because of the equity gained during this period of time, most of these home buyers are sitting in a position where they have equity in their property. So, you know, if you were one of these people that bought and, you know, uh, you know, we use the $500,000 example again, and home prices appreciated by $55,000 last year alone, that's, that's 10% just gained in equity just in that period of time. Plus, the payments they've made on their mortgage to pay down that principal, plus whatever they had initially to put down. So chances are the people aren't upside down on their mortgage. They just don't have the equity that they once had in that scenario. So what I'm getting at here is even if you see a pullback in prices, you're not likely to see people run for the fences and sell their homes because of those reasons, because they have equity, because it's expensive to rent, because, you know, um, the interest rate that they've been able to lock in and the mindset of that, you know, not willing to let it go for less than they bought it for. Jeb, Jeb yeah. I, I've, I've liked this because we're getting a lot of good comments and people just telling us how they really feel about yeah. this, this idea. So Metal Mike um, is here. It says 2008 to 2010, millions of foreclosures due to arm loans. Part okay. of it. 
Yeah. Arm loans were a very small part of it, and they're very different than the arms that we're talking about. Most of those were subprime loans, and they were fixed for only two or three years. So that many of them, I don't know what the exact number is, but like maybe not 50%, 30, 40, 50% of those were interest only. Mm -hmm. So you're paying nothing down. Not that you would pay that much down in two to three years. You were going to have to refinance out of those because they were tied to LIBOR. And the loans that we're talking about today have a, a very small margin on them, one and a half, two and a half percent. Those subprime arms had seven, eight percent margins. They were a time bomb. You could not stay in the loan. It wasn't a balloon, but it effectively was a balloon. On top of that, they were made to borrowers with very low credit scores, with no documentation, with no down payment. Those people had no opportunity. It's sort of like saying, hey, um, don't smoke because smokers always burn their houses down. No, smokers who leave you know, gasoline and open fires around their house and have a gas leak will have fires. There was so much going on there that those types of arms are very different than what we're talking about. Um, these are going to require tighter underwriting. Nearly all of these, if you take a 5-1 arm, you don't get to qualify at that start rate. Those loans back in the day, they were qualified at your 228 or 327 start rate. Anything five years or less, they're adding on a payment shock factor on top of that. So you are qualifying at a lower debt to income ratio. If we're talking jumbo loans, those are going to require bigger down payments, higher credit scores, more reserves. So this isn't money for nothing. If you're a marginal buyer, no one is going to offer you an arm. This is only an option for well-qualified borrowers who understand the risk. We even get down to, um, I was doing a, a podcast or a, a live yesterday in a veterans group that, that I moderate, and we were going through the loan estimate. And I didn't realize on the third page of the loan estimate, it says other considerations. There's a statement in there that says, you are not guaranteed the ability to refinance. In the future, you may not be able to refinance out of this loan. And it reminded me of, 2003, 2004, 2005, every hack loan officer on the planet, hey, don't even worry about this. Homes are going up 10% a year. Buy this house, do the 228. It has a lower rate. In two years, we're going to come back and refinance it. I get another commission. You get a lower rate. You've built up equity. Everything is perfect. And didn't go through any of the other details that it's interest only. You're not going to pay anything down. You didn't put anything down. You have terrible credit. You've never paid anyone on time and you don't have any savings. And the payment on this is much higher than what the rent would be. And as soon as we hit the 228, the payment's going to double. So uh, just very, very different. You guys are all 100% correct. Be prudent. Consider it if, if you're open to it from a risk tolerance level and go through all the numbers and be fully educated on it. It's not the right answer for everyone. It's the right answer for some people. Good stuff. Um, yeah, I mean, I think all of that is important to note, right? I mean, we talk about it all the time. Unfortunately, you know, you know, we said earlier that that data you can manipulate data to kind of feed your story, so to speak, or tell your story, but not without telling the you're not necessarily telling the whole story, you know, and not picking on Metal Mike at all um, because again, arms were a piece of the puzzle, right? We 100%. talk. I, I often say. I use the term piece of the puzzle all the time because there are multiple pieces to this puzzle. This puzzle of housing is not a, you know, a five piece puzzle, like not a kid's puzzle. It is an adult size thousand piece puzzle that each one of those pieces plays a part in how this thing operates. At that time, unfortunately, there were a lot of pieces that were 
missing um, in order to have a foundation uh, for a strong housing market. And one of those was this. So you can look at arms. Arms were a piece. They weren't the only piece. Like Josh mentioned, there were other factors that went into it. So um, just keep that in mind when when referencing 2008 or what have you. But Josh, really important question here. Uh, Maddie wants to know the in and out order, including the beverage. So the key part is an in and out cup. That's extra large iced tea. We don't drink calories. That's a bad thing to do. It's a three by three. This guy, the guy says he drinks 10 805s <laughs> in like five minutes. Just said he drinking calories is bad. I think I had 34 Holy of them cow. on Sunday. I gained, doing, Jeb, you'll like this. I believe I drank somewhere around 100 tiny 12 ounce cans of 805 last weekend. And I gained 4.9 pounds from Thursday on the scale to Monday morning on the scale. The good news is I lost them today. Sorry, I'm back. I, did, I got in the middle of your order there. So ice three by three by three, lettuce, mustard, pickle only, fries with pepper and salt. And if it's if we're feeling frisky, it's a Friday night. Maybe we're gonna have a large Neapolitan shake on top of that. Wow, there you go. Same Josh, thing, always Josh, every six, time. Five, how many pounds? Two fifty. Six five two fifty. So you gotta you gotta feed that that beast, if you will. There you go. It takes All a right. little bit. I want to know here. I'm gonna poll you guys because I when I grabbed this, I just didn't go in to eat. I just grabbed a nice tea because I like their big iced teas there. And the guy in front of Hold me, on. you waited in that line just for an iced tea. Oh, it was four o'clock, dude. There was like three people there. But the one guy in front of me, who I was waiting behind. He ordered. Has anyone ever heard this at the, uh, at In and Out? He says, "I'll have a double meat." Like, what in God's name did he just ask for? So I get to the front and I said, what is a double meat? And she goes, it's a double double with no cheese. It's just double meat. And I said, that man is a communist and should not be allowed in here ever again. <laughs> uh, too good. All right. Uh, the Flying Dutchman. <laughs> All right. Um, Samuel has a question here. Do you know how many foreclosures there are today and how many there was before the pandemic. So today there's not a lot. Um, you know, it's up 700%, Jeb. I saw the YouTube video. Yeah. So you're reading headlines now that, that again, foreclosures have increased by 700%. But let, let's just talk about any foreclosure right now that you're seeing happening, happening, any foreclosure you see happening right now is likely, very, very likely, somebody that was in default prior to the pandemic. Because the pandemic, basically put foreclosures on hold for almost two years. Um, and so during that two-year period, homes gained a substantial amount of equity. So it was very difficult for you as a homeowner to buy a house after the pandemic and actually go in default just because of the amount of appreciation. So chances are, I mean, is it possible? Sure, it's possible. But likely any foreclosures you're seeing now were a result of something that happened prior to the pandemic. Um, I don't know the actual numbers. I just know that they're not big enough to really play a part in, um, you know, the data that's that's out there at the moment. Um, Black Knight puts out data every year or every month, rather. Um, they're a pretty good resource if you want to go to their website and grab the data on foreclosures and on that sort of thing. The problem with them is they're about a month behind um, on all their information. So, you know, when I come out here and I do videos and I start quoting January, people are like, what the hell is he talking about? Well, it's because their their information is is that old. And so it's very difficult to, to, to use for that reason. Uh, but 
to the easy answer is it's not enough to to change the dynamic of a of a market at this time. And, and think about it. The the reason is. Um, you can look at, so the way the foreclosure process, it varies by state, whether they're, they're more a mortgage state or a trustee state. In California, with a trustee state, we have um, a notice of default. You have 90 days. When you fall behind on your payment, they have to file the notice of default. From the notice of default date, you have 90 days to cure it. If you don't cure it, they can file a notice of trustee sale. 21 days later, they go to the courthouse steps and they sell your house. So what's going to happen? We can see an uptick in notice of defaults. We're not going to see much of an uptick in foreclosures because those people that have got in trouble, even if you went through two years of forbearance, home value went up more than your equity uh, decreased while you were, uh, you were not making your payments. So that same person is just going to sell the home, a prudent person. I've seen people lose homes to foreclosure with equity in them that they could have sold just because they're being obstinate. But um, for the most part, all of these people are going to sell their home. So watch the notice of default filings in trustee states. Um, then you're looking at notice of trustee sales filings are going to be very low. Um, and I don't think we're going to see very many foreclosures. It will absolutely trend up and you will continue to see insane headlines that say foreclosures up 10,000% because they went from two in a county to a hundred in a county, which is a big, big increase, but it's still tiny relative to the number. So don't look at percentage changes month over month, look at it to historical levels to see if it's an issue or, or a problem. We need to get where more than 10% of the homes in the MLS are foreclosure bank owned properties before it has much of an impact on home prices. Right, and that's not gonna happen anytime um, soon. So. Um, Johnny, I went to click on something and it moved here. Hold on. Uh, Johnny, Johnny, Johnny. Do you have an opinion on commercial market as we're coming out of the pandemic? Bullish or bearish? Josh, any thoughts on commercial? I have no thoughts on it. I have a friend who um, they have a physical therapy clinic. They've rented forever and they decided they're going to buy. They asked my opinion. I looked at it and I go, the price seems right, but I have no no gauge for is it a little high a little low and i don't have much of an opinion on on where it's going if you look at a lot of businesses the building that we're in here we've got a lot of vacancies and it's office space and most of the businesses in here are the types of businesses where those employees a lot of them are working from home so people are downsizing their offices that type of commercial i would be uh, a little bit concerned with but other stuff maybe maybe it's great i just i claim ignorance how about that yeah, I mean, my brother-in-law is um, in in the leasing space, commercial leasing space, which isn't necessarily commercial real estate in 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 its entirety, but it's a good measure as to what businesses are doing with regards to renting space and that sort of thing. Um, and it, it's it's still there's a lot of businesses looking for space. There's a industrial space is is very very popular. Medical space very very popular. Um, office space. I honestly don't know as much. Um, like Josh said, businesses working from home, um, probably less of that. But, you know, so a portion of the market's doing very, very well. I know that because, you know, there's it's a growing segment uh, of that, you know, the industrial space and the medical space. But commercial uh, office space is probably, you know, if any part of it's hurting, it's probably that. But what I will tell you is there's a lot of money out there in the commercial space looking to buy different, you know, um, aspects of, of commercial real estate. I mean, we talked on the show here before there's been two mobile home parks in, um, 
in uh, Huntington Beach area that have sold for a significant amount of money. And you might say, well, that's not commercial. It's residential. Yeah, but when you're when you're talking fifty something million dollars, I mean that's that's big money. Um, that's a business decision on that side of things. So people are still buying. Um, there's still a lot of money out there, is what I'm saying. It's just that the whatever they're looking at has to be able to produce some sort of return. So uh, I think from a a buying office space and buying, you know, because Josh, th this complex sold right in the pandemic. Right. I mean, it was right in the middle of it. So that was and this is I don't know what it ended up selling for, but this was a big um, this was a big number on this. So I think, you know, the I think there's transactions still happening out there. I'm seeing and even even with them. Happen. So this complex is one, two, three, is it four or five buildings? But their plan is they're going to doze one. Five, yeah. Um, they're going to doze one, uh, build a parking structure, take a bunch of the parking lot and convert it to a senior living senior facility. Living. Yeah. So the senior livings are huge. There's another one right over here on the other side of the parking lot. There's three more right down the street. You have an aging population like that's there. There are things that's commercial real estate. The guy um, we had to have put my dad into an assisted living facility for the last year or so of his life. And that guy was a residential builder. He used to build single family homes. Instead, he built a bitch in assisted living place that looked, you know, like we had remodeled my dad's condo like five years before he went in there. And the new place looked nicer than how nice we made his condo. So, um, there's definitely a market for for different types of things. Office space may be on the downswing, but senior living is on the upswing and different types of things will do do well regardless of the market. You just have to have your hand on the pulse. And I sure don't. No, and, and I don't either. I mean, I have conversations at family dinners about the market, but that's about the extent of commercial. But I'll try to have deeper conversations to provide some information here. <laughs> Um, Chris, he does not have a YouTube channel. Um, so there's nothing to find there. Uh, but there was a question here. Um, luxury luxury card store says apartment building. I live in just sold today. Are the new owners required to continue my lease? I'm looking to buy, but I need to know if I have to do it sooner. So if you have a lease that hasn't expired, it's not a month, the month lease. It's a, you know, a, a long-term lease, if you will. And, and you still have time left in it. They are, they're required to honor that lease. Um, now, when it does expire, obviously things can change there and, you know, uh, what have you. So you should be good for the time being. Um, but, you know, if you're on a month to month, they can adjust that as well. So just, Jeb, just keep that in mind. Yep. Would that be the same if uh, someone sold a single family residence that these guys were renting and the new person was intending to occupy as their residence? It, yeah. It, yeah, for sure. They, I mean, if, if you're a tenant... Yeah, if you're a tenant in a property and you have a lease, the new owner, even if they're buying it as a primary home, can't kick you out. Um, and that's something that that needs to be figured out prior to you, you know, you closing on that property as a potential home buyer. If there is a tenant in it um, and they haven't been given the 60 day notice or they haven't vacated or what have you, you take on that risk of uh, of, you know, them staying there for whatever reason or, or the potential of honoring that lease. So. Uh, yeah, good stuff. Uh, let's see. We are, um, last one, last one I'll ask Dan, Dan Frio. Dan has a channel, um, on real estate as well, uh, on mortgage side of things. Um, if it's the same, same Dan I'm thinking of, maybe not. 
because he doesn't have a picture here, so maybe not the same Dan. Um, but anyhow, uh, Jeb and Josh, what's your burner account? Yeah, exactly. What are you guys seeing from all the loans that have come out of forbearance going on the market or just picking up on the payments where they left off? I haven't I, – I don't – we as agents don't know – you know, if if the property came on the market because forbearance ended and they keep, can't keep the payments or what have you. So I would tell you that, you know, are there some that are going to come on the market because of forbearance? Absolutely not the greater majority. But FHA just came out and said that they're going to mimic the same waterfall guidelines, if you will, as conventional did. And they're adding a 40 year option on the uh, on the uh, forbearance options. So they'll be able to, to recast that loan to 40 years now to lower the payments even more for people that are having trouble coming out of forbearance. That is now an option on FHA as well as conventional. So it's going to be, there's not going to be a lot of people that can't make those payments um, if that's actually the case and they go through and do those um, those options for people coming out of forbearance. Most people aren't going to, you know, they're going to have equity anyway, and they're probably going to have a very low mortgage payment um, if, if they use any of those available options. Which so. is, is yet another reason why those foreclosure numbers are going to, to be low. Um, from our end, I have had a ton of clients before rates shot up that were refinancing out of their forbearance, either bringing it current or making the three on-time payments and refinancing out of it. We also have a system that not for all of our, our borrowers, but for most of our borrowers, we get notified um, if there is a payoff demand requested on their loan. And I'm not seeing many of them at all. I don't see many of my clients at all having payoff demands for selling, but we always reach out, hey, what's going on? Are you guys selling? We have a system that notifies us if they're listing and we'll always just reach out and say, hey, what's going on? Anything you guys need help with? Just want to stay up to, to date with everything. And I'm not seeing um, any of them listing due to forbearance. There you go. Um, well, it is that time, my friends. Two hours in, we are going to call it quits. We appreciate you guys being here. A reminder, next week, uh, no no live um, out of town. Uh, but this week's episode, again, if you want to go back and listen to the entire thing, will be put on that little uh, box up there in the right, uh, the Educated Homebuyer Podcast. You can get it on Apple. You can get it on Spotify, Anchor, any, basically any platform that you listen to. You should be able to gather it. This is one of the episodes we post a week. We just started doing this because a lot of you guys have asked for it. The other episode, which is posted every Tuesday, is a deeper dive into a specific topic. This last week was interest rates. This coming week, um, we're talking about uh, things you can do to basically help your offer stand out in this environment. We've talked about everything of why you should own a home, should you buy now, pre-approval versus, versus pre-qualification, paying points, everything, everything you need to know to become an educated home buyer is there. Um, and if you're a seller, there's some stuff for you too. Josh, anything you want to add before we exit tonight? No, just keep asking good questions. Don't let anyone tell you what to do. Um, whether it's people telling you all oh, this even is your top. wife, even your wife, definitely don't <laughs> let her tell you what to do. That's you can tell who has the peaceful home life and who doesn't. Um, but don't, don't let anyone tell you do your research. Um, figure out where you're at and what you're comfortable with. You know, there's a bunch of people here saying, hey, this is a top, you should never buy, you're stupid. There's a bunch of people saying, hey, you have to buy whatever you do, uh, sell your soul to get a home. The answer is somewhere in the middle. Do your research, educate yourself with shows like this and others, and come to your own conclusions. Good stuff. Um, we appreciate you being here. Hit the thumbs up if you found any value tonight. We will see you again in two weeks.
Thanks again for the support. Adios. Thanks for listening to The Educated Home Buyer. Want to connect with us or to a local expert in your area? Please reach out at theeducatedhomebuyer.com slash expert. If you found any value today, please be sure to rate and review us on your favorite podcast platform. In addition, we ask that you share it with your friends and subscribe to us on YouTube. And make sure to follow us on social media. Thanks again for listening.